Welcome to Books of Titans. I'm Jason Staples, together with Eric Rostad, and this podcast is dedicated to the influences of influencers, the books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectual scientists, and others. And we'll talk about what makes these books so important and influential, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about these important works. Today, we're going to cover Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life by Steve Martin, a book about Steve's early life and development as a stand-up comic before his acting fame. This book was recommended by Mark Andreessen. He's the co-creator of the Mosaic Browser. He co-founded Netscape and is considered one of the founding fathers of the internet. He's now a very influential tech investor. Yeah. (laughs) The the main, the main founder. Yeah. Uh, Now he's a very inventor. Yeah. He's a very influential tech investor through his venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. Mark's uh, takeaway from the book as written in Tools of Titans is he says that the key to success is to be so good that they can't ignore you. And that is a quote from Steve Martin. But ironically, it's a quote that is not in the actual book. And so I, I see this written all the time, the be so good that they can't ignore you. And it's it's from Steve Martin, and it's usually attributed to this book. But uh, I did not see it in there, and, and we just did a search for it, and it, it's actually not in the book. But uh, Jason found that it's actually something that he says quite often to uh, – to comics, but, uh, yeah, it's his it's, advice it's to young comics, but not in the book. <laughs> so we, we just discovered something. Uh, Tim Ferriss is also a huge fan of the book. Obviously the author of this book is Steve Martin. He was born a poor black child in Mississippi. He started as a stand-up comedian and later became an actor. Now, uh, he's actually not a, he wasn't a poor black child in Mississippi, but, uh, that is a reference to one of his more famous, lines and probably one of the more famous first lines in, in all of music his, uh, movie history where <laughs> he starts off the movie The Jerk with uh, that he was a poor black child in, in Mississippi. So uh, as we'll see later in our discussion, one of his uh, his comic strategies is, is shock. And uh, that's definitely a, a shocking and, and yet pretty funny, funny comment from a from a white guy. From a so ne- on to the next. <laughs> On to the next section, we're going to start with our favorite quotes, and I'll start with mine. Uh, this book was just chock full of, of one-liners where you'd be reading a, about the story, and the story was just kind of a normal, his recounting of the story, and then he would just break in these one-liners that I, I just found myself laughing out loud. Well, you know, and uh, that's, th- that was really surprising to me, given that it was written by a, uh, by, by a guy who'd done, you know, multiple decades of stand-up comedy. I, I, I really didn't expect that sort of... That sort of uh, you know, one-liners being dropped in there of humor uh, in, in this kind of book. It was, a, it was a little surprising, but it was a nice, nice, nice uh, uh, addition to what I thought would be a very dry book. <laughs> so my, my favorite quote was, I was so broke that when I hit a nickel slot for 50 cents, it momentarily changed the quality of my life. Yeah, that's a pretty good one, but it's not, not the best one in the book. It just isn't. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's quite a few other other ones that are better. Uh, actually, my favorite quote in this book uh, was, it, it's, it's actually, I, my first piece of it is the, is the first line. My actual favorite quote is the first line of this whole section, but, the, but then he continues to say a little bit more uh, to develop it. And so I'll, I'll read both my favorite line and then the favorite sort of chunk overall. Uh, my favorite line is, thankfully, perseverance is a great substitute for talent. And that is so true. I mean, it's and it it, it sort of exemplifies a lot of the value of this book is that Martin, in in many cases, uh, uses his comedic gift of uh, pithy sayings to get across some things that are that are really actually valuable, that are that are. Uh, good reflections on the way things actually work. And, and he goes on to, to develop this, uh, skipping ahead a little bit in the, in the, in the uh, paragraphs around this. But he, he explains, despite a, despite a lack of natural ability, I did have the one element necessary to all early creativity, naivete, that fabulous quality that keeps you from knowing just how unsuited you are for what you are about to do. And again, that that really hits something that I think is is underrated when it talk when you talk about uh, about people who are successful, people who've uh, who've hit it big, people who've done things that are great. 
we, we tend to lionize those people. And again, this is, this goes back to outliers. I mean, our, our last podcast on this, uh, you know, and there were a lot of parallels, actually, a lot of uh, a lot of there's a lot of overlap between these. And I, I know you've got some notes on that uh, to come up, uh, Eric. But mm-hmm. um, but, you know, we, we tend to talk about how talented, the, the, you know, this guy is or, or you know, we would look at Steve Martin's uh, comedy and be like, oh, man, you know, he was just such a talented comedian, so skilled. And at the same point, you got to remember, he started where he was just a nervous kid who was eager to try to get people to laugh and was really trying to trying to, to do so through the process of trial and error and watching, you know, getting to, to trace through sort of his recollections of how that worked and what worked and what didn't and why it all actually did work was really fascinating this. And actually it took me to another quote that I really like, and it's by Dan Carlin, who does, you know, podcasts that we both really enjoy and that's uh, he 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 said actually, and this was in uh, in an interview with uh, with with Ferris, and I, I believe the quote is in Tools of Titans as well. I think it's one of the quotes he pulled from the interview uh, from the from the podcast episode. He said, "If I've learned anything from the podcasting, it's don't be afraid to do something you're not qualified to do." And again, that's something that Mar- that Martin in this book gets across over and over again is that he's so often just the guy who's willing to try something and willing Mm -hmm. to fail repeatedly and willing to (laughs) humiliate himself in the effort to actually do something that would be different and worthwhile and that would actually bring people a little joy and so on. And, you know, that, 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 uh, that quote really hits it, that perseverance is a great substitute for talent. Somebody who has talent but doesn't have perseverance isn't going to succeed most of the time. But mm-hmm. someone who has perseverance and really doesn't have a whole lot of talent might just stumble and and fall and all this stuff, stumble their way to success, which is really a lot of what Martin seems to <laughs> suggest he happened with him in this book that, well, you know, I wasn't really that talented and, you know, I really was just a poor black child from Mississippi that, you know, I just worked and stumbled and failed my way to success. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot to that. that, That's one of the things I really liked about this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and, uh, that goes into one of my, my uh, initial reactions to the, to the book itself in, in, uh, I've mentioned this before in another podcast, but, but I, I love reading in general, but this, this project of 52 books in one year has been really neat and, and, and not something I expected in the sense of when you, when you have that plan for those 52 books, you start referencing those books against one, one another. And so you start seeing, Oh, okay, this book is talking about this. And then, uh, I'm seeing that same theme here. And, and as you mentioned in outliers, the 10,000 hour rule, we definitely see that Steve put in over 10,000 hours, uh, in, in his craft here. And so it was, it was a neat, uh, a neat connection point especially since Outliers was the book right before this in the, the order of the, of the books. Yeah, and it's not just that he put in 10,000 10, hours, because lots of people who uh, have not really been all that successful you know, might put in 10,000 hours. He mm-hmm. put in 10,000 hours of persistent, very deliberate attempts to get better. I mean, he mm-hmm. over and over again failed. And, one, and, and, and getting back to that, some people might have quicker success on stage, but the thing that sticks out in this, in, when you're think, talking about that 10,000-hour rule from Outliers, is Martin, you, you can see there's that turning point where he's finally had enough experience it, where the delivery's right, where the content is, is, is sort of working for him. He's found himself, he's found his own voice and just happens. It just happens to come along at the time when comedy is shifting in the right direction for it to work for him. And again, it's all of that confluence that, that goes right back to, like you said, right back to outliers where he doesn't have success. doesn't have huge success. And in some cases gets some of the worst reviews I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's one of the, one of the other great quotes in there, uh, was uh, was after he after he was explaining his efforts to uh, uh, to learn you know or to to do you know really innovative comedy. <laughs> what was the quote? It was uh, uh, this is the. It was after a Los Angeles. Uh... 
here. It's um, my first reviews came in. One said, <laughs> "This so-called comedian should be told that jokes are supposed to have punchlines." Another side said, "I represented the most serious booking error in the history of Los Angeles music." Yeah, that's um, <laughs> that, that's that's what one would call devastatingly bad reviews. And he suffered through this stuff for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about doing hundreds of shows a year, consistently getting just awful ratings at times and being the guy that people would hire simply because, well, he's available. And, mm-hmm. you know, availability is is, is itself a, a, a skill in a lot of ways. I mean, that's that's a that's a, a part of of talent, I suppose, if you want to look at it that way. But he's the available showing up guy. Is half the battle. Yeah, showing yeah. up is half the battle. And he shows up. And he just happens to be cheaply able to be booked and he's available and consistently gets some really awful reviews and fights through those de- determined to persevere and actually make it work. And that to me is just it, it's really interesting to see that happen in this book. And, and again, to k- parallel that with with outliers and look at some of the things that, that happen to make him that outlier that actually does wind up having just astonishing success in that second half of his career in terms of, of uh, on stage and then to become uh, a, a movie and, and television star as well. Mm-hmm. And, and one other thing I just cannot pass up is uh, before we'd started recording, we'd each had one quote that very nearly made our favorite quotes. It was, it was number two on each of our lists that I cannot, I cannot help but read at this point. And that is Eddie. I discerned, was living with a woman, not his wife. The 1955 equivalent of devil worship. (laughs) Which is, again, one of those just pithily written statements that also does kind of get to some social uh, truth here and and looking at how things have changed a little bit now. I mean, some of the stuff that, that he writes about here would be would have been shocking in in its day, but is much less shocking given the direction that uh, that American culture has gone uh, over the past 30, 40 years. Well, and I think he was at the the forefront of <laughs> getting to that and the number of, uh, let's say, friends that he had. Yeah, the uh, amount of... Um, uh, moving around and experience in that in that world in that avenue uh, for uh, for some of us who uh, are more traditional in 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 that uh, in that realm of things uh, is a little revealing in terms of how the other half may live. And actually, I thought it was interesting that he himself is is a little bit reflective about that. About well, you know, that wasn't all also also positive. I mean, he he mentions in one in one case. Um, that his sex life was abundant and selfish, I believe is is the quote, and uh, yeah. that happens to be right right at the point where he starts to yeah he says uh, you know I had some cash my sex life was abundant and selfish, and that happens to precede the paragraphs where he talks about his panic attacks, which we'll get into uh, just a little bit later, which is is again interesting, but you know he's he's reflective and in some cases pretty. Uh, uh, he he's not he doesn't just give himself a free pass he doesn't just think everything he's done is is great and there are some cases where uh some of the things that people would look at and be like man i wish i could have lived that way he goes eh, well you know actually there were downsides to it which is is interesting to see him so candid and, ref- and reflective about some of those those aspects of his life yeah and that that ties in with with one of my other big takeaways in the book uh, and just how sad it was to read about his relationship with his father. Oh, yeah. Uh, his father had been an aspiring performer who never made it, and he never liked Steve's comedy. And, I mean, one of the, the most heartbreaking things, and that's where I, I would kind of go back be- between laughing out loud and coming near to tears, because uh, after Steve's first Saturday Night Live performance, <laughs> his father wrote a, rev- a negative review of it and gave it to all of his 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 friends. So his father gave a negative review to, to his friends about how much he hated his son's performance in, in Saturday night live. Um, I, I, I did <laughs> Unbelievable, think man. it was interesting though, that he did dedicate the book to his father, uh, his, and his mother and his sister as well. But, but despite all that trouble that he had with his father, uh, he did dedicate this, this book to him. 
But yeah, as, as Jason said, it was, it's, it was a very poignant and honest discussion, not only about his sex life, but also his, his family in this book. And I was really surprised to see that. And we talked before about, you know, not, not being a shock that there'd be hilarious one-liners throughout the book, but I, I actually was surprised that, that he had so much, uh, of this honest discussion and much more honest than I would have expected him or, or even reading someone else's book. It, it he, he went very deep into, into relationships with his family and, and especially his father. And it, it was just, it was really heartbreaking at times to read about that. Yeah. And, and others also, I mean, including some of some past partners where, you know, he reflects on, you know, sort of wistfully and particularly about Stormy, Stormy, uh, uh, you know, ends up being Stormy O'Martian, which was a, kind of a very surprising, it was a very surprising part of the book to me, uh, where he says, you know, Stormy Shirk, later to become an, an enormously successful Christian author and proselytizer under her married name, Stormy O'Martian, was beautiful, witty, bright, and filled with an engaging spirit that was not yet holy. And he talks about, yeah. I mean, that's, he, he lost his virginity or gave his virginity away, however you want to talk about that, to Stormy O'Martian, which was one of those things where I was reading the book going, wow, I would not have expected that, you know, especially knowing that name from, you know, all of these, she's, you know, she built an empire, uh, essentially with books like The Power of a Praying Wife and things like that, or The Power of a Praying Mother, uh, and has sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of books. And, and obviously her husband, Michael O'Martian, uh, was a very successful, uh, uh, Christian music artist and, and, uh, producer and all of that as well. So it was something again that I, I I didn't expect. And he actually he's very wistful about her. And, and in a lot of ways, you could see that you know that first love for him is one that he he kind of seems to regard her as sort of the one that got away. Even though he he says, yeah, you know, our lives ended up going in other directions and so on. She comes up a couple times later on where he you know he is reflective of of thinking back to Stormy. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and she, he, he talks about how she radically changed his life with the, the freshness of her intellect and how sharp she was, uh, and that, that, that raised him to a different level in terms of as a performer, uh, got him to think about more than just the day to day stuff. I mean, he, he says at one point that he was actually, uh, contemplating getting a, a, a doctorate, going for a doctoral degree in, uh, in, in philosophy, which I can I can attest that uh, many people who go on to to get doctoral degrees in philosophy or religious studies or, or the humanities in general are more or less failed comedians. Uh, so, in that sense, I mean, he's just gone the opposite direction. He he becomes a successful comedian in part because he perseveres far enough to uh, to uh, uh, to earn his audience as opposed to forcing him uh, forcing to to gaining forced audiences that will have to laugh at perhaps bad jokes uh, based on the human condition in the context of university classes. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, she got him thinking about all sorts of deeper stuff. Uh, and um, yeah, it was, it was interesting that, that he, you know, he, he talks about how he's, uh, you know, reading Wittgenstein and he's, uh, you know, there's, there's this great stuff where he, he, he winds up, uh, uh, discussing this with the, with one of his classmates, uh, that Wittgenstein's investigations disallowed so many types of philosophical discussions that we were convinced that the very discussion we were having was impossible. Soon I felt <laughs> that a career in the irrational world of creativity not only made sense, but had moral purpose, right? So since, you know, we couldn't actually be having this philosophical discussion at all, given, you know, Wittgenstein's, uh, uh, philosophy of, of language and, and, and all of that, we might as well just enjoy the irrational aspects of creativity because it, it, it's morally warranted. So, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing is, is interesting. And I think he's being a bit tongue in cheek there, but there, that attests to a little bit more depth perhaps in terms of depth of thought and the way that he, you know, he became a reader. He became someone who really was interested and continues to be interested in the human condition more than the uh, more than most. And and you know, I think that undergirds some of the absurdity of his comedic acts and some of what ultimately makes him successful as a comedian. Yeah, and I I really liked uh, on page sixty five of the 
of the hardcover book, he, he talks about the one book that changed his life. And, uh, it was, it's called the razor's edge. And he talked about what, uh, what moved it for him. And that was around the time that he was with stormy. Uh, but it, it, I, I loved that. And, and it's really one of the, the things I think about a lot with, with, uh, this project too, of reading through, through these books, you just never know what book you're going to pick up and, and it completely change your life or change the traje- trajectory of your life. Uh, and, and that was the case for, uh, for Steve Martin here. Yeah. Yeah. And now, and getting back to some of his reflection, again, going back to his father, I thought one of the, one really poignant quote there, uh, or one, one episode was when his dad, uh, was, was wanting to buy him a tuxedo. Uh, he, he refused to let his dad, um, this was upon graduation from high school, uh, he, 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 he basically, his dad wanted to buy him a tuxedo as a, as a graduation gift. And he said, uh, this, this closes one chapter. He says, I refused because I'd learned from him to reject all aid and assistance. He detested extravagance and pleaded with us not to give him gifts. I felt through a convoluted logic that in my refusal, I was being a good son. I wish now that I'd let him buy me a tuxedo, that I'd let him be a dad. Having cut myself off from him and by association the rest of the family, I was incurring psychological debts that would come due later in the guise of romantic misconnections and a wrong-headed quest for solitude. And first mm. of all, that's, it's heartbreaking. And secondly, it's remarkably introspective. I mean, getting back to the way that he's very open and very introspective about some of this stuff uh, that... I think is, 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 is worth looking at and worth looking at how this stuff, how these things matter. And, and, you know, it it makes you want to go back and, and make sure that you're well connected with your own parents when you read some of this. I mean, I know it did for me in that sense. Uh, And of course he then follows it up with, with a great one liner where he says, I tell you this story of my father and me to let you know. He says, I've heard it said that, that a complicated childhood can lead to a life in the arts. I tell you this story of my father and me to let you know that I'm qualified to be a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's like he takes you. And this is this is the essence of how this book works. And again, it's got the kind of uh, tension release kind of qualities that you have in really good comedy where he'll take you right to the bottom where you're almost ready to cry about his relationship with his dad. And then he says, yeah, I'm only telling you this so that, you know, I can show you that I I'm qualified to be a comedian because of my daddy issues. (laughs) God, (laughs) like you just took like got really introspective. And then all of a sudden you just, you just completely shatter the tension with this sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's exactly what you would expect by, you know, a, a quality comedian. And that goes into some of his theories about comedy that, uh, that I'm sure we'll discuss in a little bit later. But he, ta- he talks about <laughs> the best kind of laughs most of the time being the uncomfortable ones where the, the person in the audience is not even quite sure if they're supposed to be laughing. And if they're the ones that start the laugh, that he said that's a more true laugh than, uh, than one where you know it's at the end of a punchline and, and everybody, everybody's laughing. But L- kind of the uncomfortable out of ones where you go to a dark – What's that? Yeah, laughing out of duty, right? You know, that, oh, you know, he just said the punchline and we're all going to laugh. And, you know, he talks about how it becomes part of the rhythm of the show where everybody's like, oh, yeah, I should be laughing now. And, you know, everybody just does it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, then. Yeah, those uncomfortable moments. That's, he said, that's the best laughs. Uh, (laughs) So, and and one other cool thing I thought, uh, he he was, he would go to these small little, little joints and he, he would do the, it would be the same place that he would just keep doing, doing comedy. So it'd probably be a different audience, but he said he knew that he was connecting when he would hear the waitresses chuckle (laughs) because the waitresses had heard that joke multiple times. And if they were chuckling, he knew that he had a good, he had a good joke on him. So this kind of goes into more of, uh, of his approach to comedy overall. And one thing I just thought was, was awesome about that is he likened his approach to comedy to a, to an opera where you just throw everything at the audience at once. I thought that was really cool. The, I mean, the opera, you've got, you've got singing, you've got acting, you've got an orchestra playing, you've got a set going. So it's like a combination of, uh, I mean, you could just go and see the orchestra or you could just go and see a play, but you have all of these things combined into an opera. And so he would, for his comedy, you know, he'd walk up on stage and he would have a, a banjo uh, he would, he would just do crazy stuff. Uh, the whole time he'd have a screen up where he'd do stuff behind the screen that looked like his, his arm was extending. 
And so he was using all of these different options and capabilities and, 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 you know, not just standing in front of the mic and trying to get people to laugh, but, uh, writing songs and, and doing all sorts of different things. And it was cool that he, that he likened that to, to opera. Yeah. And, and, and actually that, that's not the way that everybody has always done comedy. I mean, that was something that, mm-hmm. that was his particular take on comedy was to, you know, basically try to, to almost stun the senses in every sense, uh, over and over again with, with all sorts of different, you know, it's bombardment from all sorts of, uh, all sorts of angles rather than just one particular thing. And, and, and in a lot of respects, he changed comedy with, with how he did that. Although I'm not sure anybody else has exactly had the same, has been able to take his approach and, 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 and work with it that way. Um, Although, you know, I, I think maybe you could argue for somebody like Dana Carvey with, with his incorporation of music and other aspects to some of his stand up. uh, you know, maybe maybe closest on on some of that, but his his comedy again is 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 very different from what Steve Martin's was, which was more surrealist in that sense in his stand up. So uh, so yeah, I mean again, I, and I thought his not just his inter- introspection about uh, relationships, which again, there's one more quote I can't help but read here his, his uh, in his introspection about relationships where he says. Free love, man. Free love. Which, by the way, was the single greatest concept a young man has ever heard. This was a time when intercourse, or some version of it, was a way of of saying hello. About three years later, women got wise and my frustration returned to normal levels. It's like, oh man, you know, he just again, it's it's poignant social commentary with a little bit of an edge where you find yourself laughing at it and you're like, ooh, you know, it's kind of that painful <laughs> laughter and, and he nails yeah. it, right? Yeah. But uh, but actually, again, he gets introspective and very almost quasi scientific about how he talks about comedy and performance art, and again, that's really fascinating to me. I mean, he talks mm-hmm. about how. You know, at one point he said, yeah, if I if I did find something, spot something that was funny, I decided not to just describe uh, describe it as happening to someone else, but translate it into the first person. So it was happening to me. A guy didn't walk into a bar. I did. I didn't want it to appear that others were nuts. I wanted it to appear that I was nuts. Right. And, and this gets back to what one of the things that I think made him successful is he would. And I think it's one of the one of the secrets to good comedy because everything is always borrowing. I mean, everything has always been done. I mean, this is, you know, everything, there's nothing new under the sun. And, and he mm-hmm. talks about that as well, where he says, you know, in, in show business, everything is eventually going to be, uh, is eventually going to be uh, old fashioned. Everything's going to be outdated at some point. But what makes it fresh and what makes it good is the ability to remix it and to take like, oh, that's interesting, but let's take a slightly different angle on it. Like, let's, Instead of it being a guy that walks into a bar, I'm going to make it me, and I'm going to, you know, throw this slight twist in it, and now I'm going to. It's going. It's like a remix, right? And and he he manages to do that, and and to break down his thought process in how he did it, which makes this which makes this book I think worth the read. Uh, mm-hmm. It's 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 his discussion about about the the process of things that's really interesting there. Uh, and, you know, he talks about eventually how he he works himself up to an act without jokes, which leads to the to the reviews that you mentioned earlier. Like somebody should tell this comedian that, you know, jokes are supposed to have punchlines. And his idea was he had this theory that eventually the laughs would be playing catch up to what I was doing. Everything would either be delivered in passing or the opposite, an elaborate presentation that climaxed in pointlessness. Another rule was to make the audience believe that I thought I was fantastic, that my confidence could not be shattered. They had to believe that I didn't care if they laughed at all and that this act was going on with or without them. And, you know, and, and that approach is, you know, it, it bombed. And he talked about at least that was the theory. And for the next eight years, I rolled it up the hill like Sisyphus. Eight years of doing that same approach of comedy without any real success. <laughs> And he lit, that's where those, those reviews come in. And it's like, oh my gosh, like the guy just, he just was willing to go out there and bomb night after night. And (laughs) the guy really, he did earn the success from later. Right. I mean, yeah. And there was an, there was a piece where he, at the end of that, where he says, I was having trouble ending my show. I thought, why, why not make a virtue of it? 
So I started closing with extended bowing as though I heard heavy applause. I kept <laughs> insisting that I needed to beg off. And, you know, eventually he would end his show. He wouldn't end his show. He would just like walk right out into the street. And that would like, yeah. and the audience would follow him out there. And it was one of those things like he, he, he would make a virtue of his weaknesses. And that again is another, is another lesson here. And, I, and, and, and there's another group of comics that actually talks about how they had the same problem. Monty Python one of the reasons that their that their comedy is jumps so much from from sketch to sketch is uh, when they were doing Flying Circus and and actually it carries over also into Life of Brian and and into uh, the, the the Holy Grail. Monty Python had a terrible time figuring out how to end sketches, so they determined let's just not end them where they where they couldn't end them, and so that's where suddenly you'd have one sketch that would walk right into another with no seam, or suddenly you just have. Uh, you know, a cut to John Cleese, and now for something entirely different, or and now for something completely different, right? Why? Well, because they couldn't figure out how to end the sketch, so let's just end it with just this jarring, uh, you know, transition that has nothing to do with the sketch, and we'll leave it without a final punchline, without a final conclusion, because we can't figure out where to end it, yeah. and it worked, right? Well, and, it's, 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 a, it's a completely different skill set because when he's on stage, he's using jokes he's used a lot. He, he knows or he, he may be testing them out, but it's for the purpose of finding what works. When he leaves the stage at the end of the show, he just starts doing impromptu stuff. He walk, starts walking <laughs> up to people, making fun of them, making fun of people that are following him. And so it's 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 interesting in that sense of that. It's a completely different skill set. He's just going impromptu at that point. And hoping hoping it works and and it sounded like it did i mean at vanderbilt he, did uh, after eight he, years he walked out yeah yeah but like at vanderbilt he he took all the students out they went to like a pool or something and he and, and after after he uh was done with the stand-up routine there so just no matter where he was he would just go out on the street and, and start uh making making light of stuff there yeah, and one of the interesting things too is, and, and he doesn't. I don't. Re, I don't think. I don't remember in, that him getting especially introspective about this aspect of it, but that also starts to blur the line between him as a comic and as an actor, you know, in character on stage and all that, and him off the stage. And that actually, that's that's something that's interesting in show business and, and among performance artists, being able to draw that line becomes important to maintain your sanity. Huh. Yeah. And you, you get these method actors, for example, that they they try desperately to get so deep into a character that they will take on that character's mannerisms and that and the accent that they have to have on screen and everything for the year of shooting a movie or whatever. And and you know, every every interaction, whether it's with their wife and kids or everything, is going to be in that character. Yeah. And in some sense, there's no way that that can't have profound impact on yeah. our own individual psyche, on on the person's psyche, where you're actually, you know, who we are or what we do is who we are, and we become what we do in a lot of ways. So mm -hmm. when when we don't have that distinction between the character that we're playing on stage and who we are off stage. It can it can get complicated in, in 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 terms of being able to maintain sort of a an individual ego, uh, mm -hmm. and and I think that's also one of the reasons why a lot of uh, co stars say will wind up having uh, having affairs with with co stars or wind up leaving their spouse for someone that they're starring with in in a given show. You spend so much time with that person in quasi romantic context where you're acting romantic and you're you're focusing that attention on that person and then all of a sudden before too long that actually bleeds off the screen into real life and 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 that that I think we start seeing where you know he he starts to have some panic attacks and has some difficulties in uh in sort of in, in figuring out how he fits off the stage once he starts actually having success on the stage and I I, I think that there's something to that and he he does yeah. explore that a little bit, but I, I I think that's one place where he maybe could have gone a little bit further on that. That when he began to have it was precisely when he started to have some have some cash, things were going really well in his in his act and all this other stuff that he started having panic attacks and started having issues with his own sort of sense of where he fit in the world. 
And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I, I suspect that that is not completely unrelated, that there's something to that difficulty of uh, dist- distinguishing oneself from being an actor or a performance artist uh, and, and being a human being with real relationships and, and reality outside that. And I, and I, and it doesn't just apply to actors or whatever. I mean, I think this is something, this is an issue with, with how we identify ourselves in general. I mean, when I, uh, when my, uh, athletic career ended, there was a, a, a little bit of a, um, of a period of adjustment. There was a, there was a period of adjustment for me where I had to kind of figure out who I was mm-hmm. when I was not an athlete, because prior yeah. to that I had always been, I mean, for 15 years, I'd been, Jason Staples, basketball player, football player, whatever, and that was what that was who I was. Mm-hmm. And then that's gone, and all of a sudden I had to figure out who who I was, who what, yeah. who am I, when when I don't have that. And the same thing can be true for you know such and such becomes a professor, and you become you become not just the, you don't just do a job, but you become a professor, and that becomes your your identity and your persona, or you become, uh, you know, this, the same thing could be, uh, identifying yourself by sexual orientation or any other thing that is only a component of how you behave that can become what you define yourself by. And then that can actually impact that impacts how we, how we think about other things. And, And it's interesting to think about how identity works and how, what we do and, and how we process what we do impacts that, and then that impacts our sanity to some degree, our mm-hmm. uh, our comfort with ourselves. Uh, so th- th- again, that's some of the reflections that I had as I was thinking through this, uh, and 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 I thought his ability to introspect about some of this uh, wound up being wound up uh, taking me through some some fruitful types of thinking here. Yeah, well, and that, that's really insightful of making that shift from stand-up comedian to when, when he does leave the stage, as you said, where he's still in character and how that, that could have even led to comfort on the movie stage and, and all that, that, that I didn't even think about that. That's a, that's a really neat, uh, really insightful thought. One other thing too, that, that I, uh, I thought that was valuable in this book was not just the introspection about comedy. He has a lot of discussion, a lot of talk about skill development and what it takes for success. And there were a couple, uh, there are a couple quotes in here and there was a lot of discussion that I think is worth reading for anybody who's trying to do quality work and trying to, to grow business or whatever, where he's talking about, again, the process of that, where he says the consistent work, this is, and this gets back to the outlier stuff, right? Enhanced my act. I learned a lesson. And this is a great lesson uh, in my, in my view, this is one of the most valuable lessons of this book. I learned a lesson. It was easy to be great. Every entertainer has a night when everything is clicking. These nights are accidental and statistical like lucky cards and poker. You can count on them occurring over time. What was hard was to be good, consistently good night after night, no matter what the abominable circumstances and there's a real lesson there. I mean, and that's that that is one of the differences between say an amateur and a pro. An amateur can stumble across something that's really funny and crack up his friends and all this and you know, that's okay, you found it by accident almost. But a pro becomes that that person who's able to be to keep a steady level of excellence for a long time. And you know, this is again, this is a difference between say a per, a, a shooter in the NBA Steph Curry, for example, Steph Curry has an off night every so often, but that guy lives in what every one of uh, any, every one of the rest of us would call the zone when it comes to shooting the basketball. And it's because Mm -hmm. he has developed such consistent habits and such consistent ways of, of uh, such a a consistent mindset that he stays in a rhythm Mm -hmm. and works his way through when he, when he falls a little bit out of rhythm. And th- I, th- I thought that that insight was really profound that it's easy to be great once in a while. It's really, really hard to be consistently good. Hmm. 
And, uh, you know, that was one. Another one that was th- that I, I related to was he said, in case I ad-libbed something wonderful, I began taping my shows with a chintzy cassette recorder. And it's funny because I started doing that when I taught years ago. And, and, you know, this is probably 10, 15 years ago. I started realizing that I would get asked questions by students or whatever in a class. And all of a sudden I'd be able to answer something off the cuff that was really, really good. That was something I might want to be able to write on later or, you know, work into research later. And I wouldn't always be able to remember it after I actually answered the question. <laughs> so I started recording classes for that reason. And also it, you know, be- became a beneficial thing in, in case, uh, especially as things have changed in higher education, in case students make unfounded accusations that you said this or that in your class. Well, you know, I have the recording. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't, you can't tell me something happened when I have the recording of what happened and I can just go ahead and turn that over. And that, you know, that's, that's some, that's another benefit to that. But I totally relate to that, that there's something about the, um, the, uh, serendipity of the moment that sometimes you you're you're in that zone and you can you can do things or see things or understand things or uh say something really profound or funny or whatever in the moment that you would never remember afterwards and you would never be able to put back together unless you recorded it and so Mm -hmm. i i started doing that and and uh and and it's been beneficial in some cases uh because i've i've actually been able to get some some things off of those recordings uh, and then the third thing there uh, was he mentioned it's po- but it is possible to will con- confidence. My consistent performing schedule had kept me sharp. It would have been difficult to blow it. And he's talking about television and he's saying, you know, he was worried when he first started going on television where he had to be consistently good in, in that context. And he's like, but it's possible to will confidence. How? Well, because con- that consistent performance means that you have to stay up. You have to stay confident, even artificially, all the time. And again, that's a, an important lesson. Fake it until you make it actually does work in a lot of contexts. And, you know, you can see that in his in his reflections on a lot of this. Yeah. I know you yeah, wanted to talk some about his early days working at Disneyland. Yeah, I just thought that was cool. I mean, he, he, had, he was living in uh, California at that time and, and had the opportunity to work in Disneyland, uh, as, as he says, my my weekends and holidays were now spent in long hours at Disneyland, made possible by lax child labor laws <laughs> in my high school, which assigned no homework. Uh, but I I had a lot of fun as a kid in in Disney World, and uh, I, I can't imagine working there. and And that's where he he came across um, magicians and and different people who who ended up, I guess, adding to that all the things he combined in his his comedy. So he got uh, mentored there. I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for, for a kid growing up to, to be able to, to access all those different types of people working at Disneyland and in, in so many different areas of entertainment must've just been awesome for him. And, uh, so that, that was a really neat, neat thing to read about that for, from his childhood. Yeah. And one of the things that actually that quote, which is as funny as, as, as you know, as, as a lot of others in, in this book, you know, made possible by lax child labor laws in my high school, which assigned no homework. Well, you know, that is funny because those are things that we would regard as as negatives, but then he spins them as a positive. But at the same time, actually, that kind of makes a point. Right. That, well, actually, in this case, lax child labor laws were beneficial, right? Mm-hmm. And having a high school that that didn't just assign crippling amounts of homework helped make him who he was and helped helped him in terms of success. And mm-hmm. we would look at those things as potentially bad things, but it makes you wonder, again, it makes you go back to there isn't a cookie cutter for all this stuff. Sometimes, you know, it's the work that you do when you are a, a teenager, when you're a preteen, where you're, where today you wouldn't be allowed to do this stuff that he did at, at Disneyland at the age that he did it, and that happens to be the thing that that set him on the path of success. Mm-hmm. And again, that, that this is really interesting in light of outliers, right? I mean, outliers talks about this in terms of um, uh, in terms of getting certain opportunities that sometimes it's just the time you live in, like Bill Gates. 
happens to skip out in, uh, of certain things in high school and finds ways to, to do things that today it would be a lot less likely for a lot of that to happen. And it just happened to be the sweet spot where he was able to do it to get the experience that prepared him to be able to do what he wound up doing with Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, last year I read some books on, um, the start of uh, the start of the, the internet and the start of computers and uh, one was hackers and other the innovators by uh, Walter Isaacson and um, they had very similar situations to to both Steve Martin and, and Bill Gates but they um, <laughs> like you were only allowed to go into the computer lab because at that time no one had personal computers you'd go and use a shared one uh, but they they knew enough to hack into the system to say that they were only on there for an hour. But no one was in there from like uh, 12 at night to six in the morning. So these guys would go in for six hours at a time and they, they would just hack and learn the computer and, and make games and do different things. And so it, it was one of those situations where they shouldn't have had that much time and they weren't allowed to in, in the, the general sense of the rules. But uh, they got around those. And, and these are the guys that ended up creating a lot of our modern uh, computer systems and, and Internet. They they. They made it seem like they weren't on there as long as they they actually were. Kind of reminded me of the the uh, lax lax labor laws and uh, no homework. Just having the time to to explore these things as young younger kids. Yeah, and it just gets me thinking again about sort of the unintended consequences about of of well meaning and in many cases perhaps the right legislation. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we can generally agree that that not having young children working in factories. Uh, like in the you know the dawn of of the industrial age, is is a positive, right? It's better that we don't have eight year olds and nine year olds uh, leaving school so that they can work nine hour shifts at some factory where their small hands are put to use for for putting together small parts or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I think we can we can we can agree with that, but at the same time. You know, making sure that, that, that kids have the opportunity, if this happens to be where they're really interested and where they may want to make a career later on, have the opportunity to, to work at a place like Disney if it's available or, you know, do these sorts of things and, and, and work outside the box actually winds up being a positive. And legislating those opportunities out with, you know, child labor laws and different things like that actually can kind of hurt society, can, can prevent us from having a Steve Martin, uh, who regardless of what, you know, you or I may think of his, of his comedy or his dad may think of his comedy or whatever. There are a lot of people who really have enjoyed his comedy for, for a long time. And he, he, uh, he made the world better in that regard. Right. I mean, he, he added, uh, enjoyment to the world the, the it, it, you know, added value. Uh, mm-hmm. and so it, that was one of the things that got me thinking about, you know, our, oftentimes we try to design systems so that nobody gets, le- you know, no child left behind or, you know, any sort of system to make sure that, that there's no loopholes that any kid can fall through when it actually is oftentimes precisely falling through the loophole that leads to this, you know, shining star of an individual that would not have become an individual had that loophole not been there for that, that person to fall through. And again, that yeah. gets right back to, uh, Gladwell's outliers uh, ideas where Martin is himself very much the product of just living at right th- at the right time in the right place. I mean, he lived where he could walk to uh, to Disney or bike to Disney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just happened to be just the right the right moment where he would be able to do that at the right age, run into the right people. And then you combine that with his natural predispositions and some of the stuff with the daddy issues and others. And you wind up with someone who's who winds, who ends up a successful comedian after a decade of total failure. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, I think that's, that's a worthwhile thing. And and I think that that may be a, a good point, a good place for us to start wrapping up with the, with some stuff in terms of big picture. Yeah. Uh, I grew up watching some of Steve Martin's movies. So I, I always knew him as an actor and I, I never really knew that he had this stand-up life before that until reading this book. So that was very eye-opening to me and enlightening. And just also to see how he combined all those things that, that opera idea really stuck with me, how he combined all these things that, um, 
you know, maybe a few of those things have been combined before, but he, he, he really took it to a, to a new level and for many, many years. And that's, that's what made him into the actor that I saw as a kid in, in all these movies. So it, it was really neat to read that, to read the story. I was very impressed with, uh, with his honesty and his, in his, uh, poignancy about his relationships, uh, both with, with women and with his family, uh, especially with his father, uh, was not expecting that at all. And, and then again, I, the, the laughs, I really just a lot of times where I, I laughed out loud, uh, with this book in the, in the one-liners and, and they were, they were just hilarious. So I, I enjoyed the book. Um, very neat to read, to read about his life. What, what did you, what are your main takeaways? Well, one is I think this was a, this was both a, a fast read. I mean, this is one of the faster reading books we've read to this point. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's well edited and, 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 and because he's, uh, he's funny enough to, to be able to, uh, to include some levity, uh, throughout, it wound up being a very fast read, which was nice. It was, uh, appreciated on my end in that. Uh, but you know, this book was, was funny. Yes. But it was more than just laughs. To me, there was a, a lot of a lot of good reflection on opportunity and skill development and creativity, perseverance, and and flat out luck. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of stuff that that translates beyond comedy to work itself out uh, to to be the sort of thing that somebody who who wants to be successful in other areas can benefit from this. It's a fun read that has some food for thought for some, some, some other things there. I, it's a book that, you know, I think is, is worth reading. It's, and, and yeah, it's funny at times. I mean, uh, there's, there's great anecdotes throughout. Uh, and, and for those who like you grew up watching, uh, watching Martin's comedy or, or people who, uh, are a little bit older and saw his stand up stuff. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that, that is, is worth reading just for the sort of historical or antiquarian interests there. But, but I think this is a, this is a book that's a, that's worth the look and, um, and, and worth reading. And, and like I said, it's an easy and, and, uh, and quick read. So, uh, not much more to say than that. I, I, I think there's, there's some positives there, uh, overall. I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Now, before we get out of here, just a reminder, you can follow us uh, at booksoftitans.com. And of course, you can interact with us on Twitter or Instagram at Books of Titans. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast and find all of our past episodes through what used to be called iTunes, now Apple Podcasts, the Android Marketplace, Google Play, your podcast manager of choice. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please make sure to give us effusive, glorious, five-star ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy your podcasts and share your favorite episodes with at least one other friend on social media or otherwise, just socially. We'll be back soon to discuss the next book, which will be, (laughs) I have no idea. Show Your Work by Austin Kleon. On behalf of Eric Rostad, I'm Jason Staples, and this has been the Books of Titans podcast. Keep reading, keep improving. Thanks for listening. I made this.